Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. Facebook famously determined that if a new member invited 10 friends within 14 days, they were hooked for life. So they focused religiously on driving the user experience to this key metric. If you apply this product-based approach to B2B sales, then you can identify those users that are ready to talk. And this method is known as the Product Qualified Lead, or PQL. So if you sell in a freemium, open source, or trial model, then the PQL method is critical to give your sales team visibility into who is ready to talk. So talk to your data team, or better yet, partner with Whaler's team of data scientists to develop a PQL model tailored specifically for your business. You'll be empowered by knowing exactly when a user is ready to convert. To see specific examples, go to getwhaler.com forward slash Andy. That's G-E-T-W-H-A-L-R dot com forward slash Andy. And as a bonus, if you sign up to learn more about Whaler and PQLs, then Whaler will send you their optimized two-page master services contract that you can leverage for your own business free of charge. It's time to accelerate. Hi, this is Andy. Welcome to another edition of Frontline Friday with my regular and very special guest, Bridget Gleason. Now, before we get to the show, Bridget and I have a favor to ask of you. Really appreciate it. If you took time right now to leave a review for this show on iTunes, and while you're there, click the button, subscribe to Accelerate. Make sure you get Frontline Friday automatically each week. Also, we need to hear from you. More specifically, we need your sales questions. I mean, what can we answer for you? What challenges do you have that we can help you with? So go to accelerate.fm forward slash frontline and enter your question there. Each month, we're going to select one listener's question to be the question of the month. And the winner will receive a $50 Amazon gift card. So remember, go to accelerate.fm forward slash frontline to give us your question and maybe win 50 bucks. So Bridget, how are you today? Andy, I was going to try to beat you to the punch this time, but oh, then I right. decided not to interrupt. Oh, should we turn it off and start over again? Now, so you... welcome to Accelerate. <laughs> I'd like to introduce today my very special co-host, Andy Paul. Andy, how are you today? Well, Bridget, I am fantastic. That's my line. <laughs> no, things are great. Things are things are great. Oh, you're answering for me? I'm answering for me. Okay. We're, we're back to All our right. usual. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, things are fine too. Yeah. As we're recording this, we're closing in on Thanksgiving and, uh, you know, the holiday season kicking off, which actually I think really starts about Labor Day, but, um, (laughs) at least that's when I think when the Halloween decorations went out, but yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh yeah. What are you gonna do about it? So, um, 
Yeah, no, things are things are good. It's starting to be fall here in New York. I mean, finally. Which is nice. Yeah, it's nice. Yes. So you go out for a run in the morning. It's, you know, high 30s, low 40s. I mean, it's just perfect running weather. Can't ask for better. Especially in Central Park where it's so spectacularly beautiful. So, um, yeah, hopefully we can enjoy this before it starts snowing for a while. Yeah, exactly. Enjoy this window, this window <laughs> of time. All right. So, uh we have a guest with us today. Yay. Uh, yay. Yes. It gets tired. It gets boring when it's just the two of us. Oh, really? Sometimes. Oh, hmm. I like to mix it up. Okay. Don't you? Oh, I, don't, I never find you I boring. don't really get bored. I don't okay. really get bored, but I think it's good to mix it up. I find you endlessly fascinating. I know. That's what they all say, but <laughs> I'm glad that we're bringing somebody else just for fun. All right. So joining us today is Trong Nguyen, and he's the author of a book called Winning the Cloud, and and uh, yeah, it's an interesting book. And I sort of about experience growing up in sales and thought it'd be interesting to have him on and join the show. So, Trong, welcome to Frontline Fridays. Andy, Bridget, thank you so much. Uh, I am super, super excited to be on the show today. Oh, good. You're not awesome. You're, you're excited not, to have you. You're not bored. <laughs> no? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. No. Not yet. All right. Well, not we'll, yet. we'll work on that. Good. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Title of your book, Winning the Cloud, a very interesting book. So what does what does the title mean? So uh, the Winning the Cloud is, you know, we're in a really, really unique time now uh, in our high-tech industry where uh, key competitors like Microsoft, Oracle, IBM, SAP, they're all vying for customers' dollars, and they're going to try to take them to the cloud to make their business much more agile, uh, to make them a, a true digital business. I spent seven years at Microsoft, and I had some amazing experiences there. I met some really, really talented people, and uh, I thought I'd uh, share some of those stories and some of the learnings from my days at Microsoft. All right. So, minor point is, so, (laughs) I may be amusing myself only with this question, but but interesting, you used the term high-tech business. So, are we still calling it the high-tech business, or is it just technology? You know, I, I still call it high-tech, but it's, it's interchangeable today. I mean, uh, everything is high-tech. Everything is technology-driven anyway. So I think it's pretty interchangeable. Yeah, I was just wondering, how do we discern between high-tech and low-tech these days? I mean, at, one point, you- at one point we called it high-tech because, hey, a personal computer business that was that was high-technology compared to what preceded it, which was you know, handheld digital calculators, basically. Um, anyway, Bridget, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was going to say, I wonder, like, what would you consider? I'm just thinking about what would be considered high tech versus what would be considered low tech today. Yeah, like, yeah, no, that, that's a good question. I, I think it's just an evolution. So when when Andy was talking about, you know, the early days of technology, we called computers high tech. Yeah. And today, I think what we would call high tech is cloud computing, artificial intelligence, uh, bots, all of those new Quant- areas. Quantum computing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it's funny. I, I, I just brought it up because like, I don't hear the phrase anymore. And I, I thought about this a couple of years ago once when I was, was interviewing someone and it's sort of like, yeah, it's like we somewhere along the line, we just sort of drop that high tech and it's just sort of tech. Tech. Um, right? Because we've, we've <laughs> Either all... Either way. I mean, I think Either it was way. high tech when when... The technology was still foreign to a lot of people, right? When you know, not 
every household didn't virtually didn't have a, a PC, a Mac, or something, and or you know smartphones, right? I think that was the great leveler is you know everybody's carrying around these huge, huge computers in their pockets or computers with huge capacity and capabilities in their pockets. So anyway, not to get distracted, let's get back to your book. Um, what was the impetus for writing it? Uh, you know, I just uh, I've always wanted to write a book. And uh, just to kind of share and give back, um, I- I've always loved, loved, loved sales. And I just think it- it's such an amazing profession. It's such an amazing career. I think it's a craft uh, that needs to be honed like all crafts uh, should be. And I wanted to kind of write a book from a salesperson for salespeople to kind of give them a sense of, hey, here's the trials and tribulations that we all go through. And we all go through it, so you're not alone. And here are some lessons learned that uh, may help you accelerate your um, sales career and just uh, have a lot of fun doing it at the same time. So that was really the impetus for writing it. Well, in the book, you, you talk about uh, asking what you said was the wrong question, which is the question wasn't, you know, what do I have to give up today to have what you want tomorrow? Uh, but really more, it's just an acknowledgement that that being in this field and doing what it takes to win has has costs, and that people oh. need to acknowledge what that is if they're really going to succeed in sales. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I um, I think some people go into sales with the wrong, uh, I think, preconceived notion. They think sales is really really easy. Oh, I'm just going to take um, you know my clients out to lunch, to dinner, schmooze them, and all of a sudden I get the sale. And I have to tell you, I'm not sure if you and Bridget find this, but it couldn't be further from the truth. Sales is really, really, really hard. Uh, You get no's every day, nine out of 10 times. And for you to be a true uh, student of the game, and I say this uh, in the most serious way, you really have to study up on your customers. You have to know their business inside out. You have to study up on your competition, know them inside out. And you have to know what you're selling and how it's going to make your customers' lives better, easier. Um, and, and that's how you kind of win in sales, right? It's really not about the, hey, let me take you out to lunch and here's the PO. Yeah, well, I, I think that the analogy I like is, is, and it always comes to mind when I'm like watching a bicycle race. I love watching bike racing on TV and Tour de France, let's say, during the summer. And yeah, there's a, a breakaway going and and the guys are speculating whether the breakaway is going to stay ahead of the peloton and and somebody from the win the stage coming out of that that breakaway and they always talk about how much they're willing to suffer and and i think that's sort of you know it's not the same physical suffering necessarily in sales but but there's that aspect of you know how much are you willing to to invest of yourself in order to win a deal yeah yeah i gotta tell you over my career and i can count back on all the the major game-changing deals I've done, it took a lot of hard sweat, blood, sweat, and tears uh, with myself, with my teammates. I mean, there were a months, days, uh, a period of three, four, five months where we would all work 14 hours, 16 hours a day, six days a week, right? And that's what it took to win. That meant sacrificing a lot of personal time, uh, a lot of vacations, um, time with your significant other. Uh, so winning, I think there's a cost to it, and I think each one of us has to make a determination. Hey, you know, are we willing to pay the price to win or not? And there's no right or wrong answer here. It's just it's all very individual, right? But winning does cost. 
Well, and what do you think? Sorry, Andy Trong, what do you? So we're talking about all the costs. Like, and anybody listening that maybe isn't in it would say, why bother? <laughs> what's, what's the other part of it? Why bother? How would you, you know, answer that? You know, the great thing about sales is there's intrinsic rewards and extrinsic rewards. So let me deal with the extrinsic rewards first. You know, it's a great, great business. You are really the boss of your own business in sales. And the harder you work, the luckier you get and the more money you can make. So there's definitely a lot of um, rewards out there financially for you to be successful in sales. So I think that's one component of it. The more intrinsic rewards, uh, which I kind of like a lot more, and that's what really drives and motivates me is, you know, what kind of difference are you making? What kind of impact are you making for your customers, for your business partners? How have you radically transformed and changed their business? And to me, I just find that very, very satisfying. Uh, And especially in the field that we're in right now, I'm in, in technology, everything moves and changes so fast you really, really have to be on top of your game and just be, um, I would say, intellectually curious uh, mm. because, you know, the problems keep on changing so fast that if you're not curious about how to solve those problems and deeply uh, a student of the game, you could be left behind really, really quickly. Well, I guess a, a question for you is is when you describe the intrinsic and extrinsic rewards, is, is certainly research that's been published said that yeah, actually, money is not the primary motivator for for most people in sales. That it is the intrinsic rewards that ultimately are the ones that sustain people in the career. Right? I mean, if you want to have a long term career in it, it's it's the service, it's the reward of doing doing well by someone else, and so on. I mean, would you <laughs> would you do it just on that basis, or do you need to have the money too? I, I, Assuming that you get paid well, but yeah, not yeah, necessarily. I, 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 I would tell you, I, I think what I've noticed for myself, and I'm not sure it's all that different from a lot of salespeople, is there's definitely a maturity curve here. So I remember early in my career, I was really driven by the money, right? It was like, how much money can I make this year? How much can I blow at the numbers? And I drove hard at that. But at some point, when you have had those killer years, you've made a lot of money, that does, that doesn't drive you anymore, right? And then you really go to more of the intrinsic rewards, which is how can I make a difference? How can I learn? How can I grow? Uh, Myself kind of go through that maturation uh, period as a lot of my friends have as well. So for me, pay right now and the uh, um, financial rewards, I would call that just basic hygiene. Like you have (laughs) to have just the basics there. And then after that, it's really about the intrinsic rewards uh, that really drive you to work those 14, 16 hours uh, a day for months on end to get something done. Well, that's interesting. I mean, so I wonder if this is, you know, a curve. I hadn't really thought about it listening to your talk. Is is this, you know, sort of a performance curve or a life curve, let's say, that, that everyone goes through, not everyone, that certain people go through, that in order to get to the point where it's about the intrinsic rewards, you have to have had enough success in order to to reach that point, right? That you have to have enough. It's almost like you're saying, "Gosh, we have to have for me to really get over that hump and to understand that's really all about the customer and and serving them." That I really have to be sort of self-serving for a few years and really chunk out a bunch of money in sales in order to earn a bunch of money 
to sort of be in a position to to look at it that way is is that is that we think typical Bridget that you need to have like that certain baseline for to give you well it's almost like you have to be self self centered in order to get to the point to be other oriented I don't think so I don't think so I don't think I ever had that uh, the drive for me that was so like. I, I really appreciate your comment about the curve, Tron, because I think that's interesting. I think for p- different people, it's different. I think the the money portion of it is important in that it's a it's it's a lot of work and it's stressful, and your your compensation you're already taking. You know, fifty percent of your compensation is just based on on your performance. So I think there's already you've got to be able to make that money. So I think for me, that was always a component, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I, I think that was a component, but what has made it more than a job is the intrinsic and the solving problems and working with customers and building teams. And I, and so I think for me, there's a part of it that's a job and that's what I get paid for. And then the part that makes me love it and that is rewarding and why I've stayed with it is everything intrinsic. It's that's, what's made it more than a job. Well, let me ask the question though of, of Trong. So Trong, you know, you described this, you know, in the early years, you were much more focused on your compensation and the incentive compensation portion of it. Do you feel, and then you said you sort of moved into this phase where it's more about the intrinsic rewards of serving and so on. Do you feel you were less customer centric in those early years when you were, more focused on the extrinsic rewards? L- less than I am now, for sure. I, I think if I was being honest, uh, I would say in my early years, it was really more about how can I get deals done and how can I kind of maximize the comp, right? And I, I wasn't looking at it in terms of, hey, what kind of customer problems can I solve and how can I help their business? How can I help them grow? Where now that's how I approach it, right? Uh, so I, I would say so. And are you having more success now than you did then? Oh, massively, yeah. massively. Yeah. I mean, that the relationships I've built, I think over the last 10, 15 years with that approach, I mean, they've sustained and carried me through, have, have been with me all this time. I mean, those are the kind of enduring relationships that you really want to have. It's not a one-off. It's not a transaction where... It, you, you sign it, you're done, and you move on. I mean, I call on uh, the CIOs that I have for the last 15 years today, mm-hmm. even though we do no business together because, you know, we've developed a relationship and we've mm-hmm. become friends over time as right. well. Yeah, it's an interesting question, though, just to think about it. And, and as I was triggered by your, your comments, is like, okay, if we're, if we're tracking the arc, the career arc of top performers, mm. you know, is, does everybody sort of start off being a little more mercenary before understanding that, really the path to greater success doesn't mean that they can't end up selling stuff early on and make some money, but the path to greater, more consistent success is to be less focused on that. And I just wonder whether it's, you know, that's a revelation for people or it's just a matter of maturity and perspective, but it's, it's interesting. You you triggered an interesting, interesting thought there. Did you find for you, Andy, that it, it followed the trajectory that, um, Trong mentioned of like initially being more, um, about just making the money and taking care of yourself, and then it it changed. 
Um, not for me. I mean, I, I, that could be a function of where, <laughs> where I worked. Because even if you hit it out of the park, you made diddly squat. Um, mm. In a you know, in a real sense. I mean, part of the reason people, you know, the computer company I worked at back in the early days, part of the re- reason people are f- fleeing it like uh, like rats is that. Yeah, you get recruited to go to one of the competitors and make twice as much money overnight. Mm. And I made the decision to go into management rather than do that. So, um, yeah, I think it was more about the intrinsic rewards for me. But, um, yeah, some of those financial rewards came a little bit later. Um, Cool. So, um, you had some life lessons you talked about in the book, and we've covered some of them. But... um, yeah, you know, some are just sort of basics. You know, you talk about you know, work-life balance being a myth. So how do you integrate work and life together? You know, Andy, I don't know if I've got that figured out yet. Uh, I could tell you I have always struggled with uh, work-life balance where, you know, I used to work 80 hours um, a week uh, to the detriment of my family. Uh, I've started doing a, a bunch of other things just to kind of help me get grounded and get better, but I don't think I've nailed it yet. Uh, I started taking uh, karate and kind of pursuing that just to kind of get the the physical mm-hmm. element and, and exercise back in there. Uh, I started forcing myself to ensure that I read at least, and I loved reading, right? I loved reading, to read at least a book a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I forced myself to kind of spend more time with family. And when I'm there, uh, just be there. Right. And I could tell you in my 30s and my earlier days, uh, when I was with my family, I was multitasking. My mind wasn't there. And, you know, they're smart. They know it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I think that hurt me early on. But now when I'm there with them, uh, I make sure that I'm there with them. Right. So, well, I think those those are things that that I'm trying to do. Yeah. And I think the whole thing about being there wherever you are is really the key. And and it's hard early in the career. I I certainly empathize with what you were talking about. I mean, it it uh, I think it's part of that learning curve we go through when you're ambitious and you're having some success because success or breeds the desire to succeed some more. Yeah, and yeah. you feel the pressure too in sales. You know, once you've had a great year, the pressure there is to have another year and another year and so on. Um, yeah, it's hard, and certainly the. The way our technology and our personal technology has evolved, it's it's not made it easier. But I think for me, I mean, that's that is, yeah, it's a lifelong struggle for all of us because you know the technology. We're all evolving with the technology as it evolves, and and yeah, that for me, it's like focusing on okay, wherever I am, that's where I need to be, right, and be be fully there. And if you can do that, then yeah, then you sort of get the extract the maximum out of every moment of your life. Including when you're with parents, with customers, with family, and with friends, and so on. Yeah, totally. I, I tell you, Andy, I, I wish I'd learned that lesson in my twenties. <laughs> I would, I would have been so much better off. But I'm so glad I learned it now, though. Well, I think we all continually learn it. I mean, it's 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 a struggle. I mean, yeah, I would say that's true. I think it that's a hard one to learn in your twenties, Trong. I feel the same way. I wish I'd learned it in my twenties. And Andy, as you say, I'm. It's a daily practice. This is not one, at least for me, that was sort of one and done and mastered. Um, it's it's a constant vid- vigilance to try to stay present in whatever's happening or whoever you're with. Um, but it's a good, it's a it's a worthwhile endeavor. Well, and there's 
been studies, and you and I talked about this in a previous episode about about uh, happiness and the study of happiness, where being happy is a key to success in business and life. And mm. one of the ways to uh, increase your happiness is research is being done and saying, yeah, you got to quit trying to multitask. Because even though on one hand people say the reason, hey, we're become super checkers of our phones is there's this dopamine rush, but but they're really finding that's you know sort of a high is that there's really stress that comes with that, and you know the more that we can sort of eliminate some of that just fundamental multitasking in our lives yeah. and be more present, then yeah, our levels of happiness go up and our productivity will go up. Cool. <laughs> He's trying out to do it. It is. It's true. I think it, it's great. It is true, and and it's. Uh, I think it's sort of. It's a hard lesson. I think we're sort of at a unique time. I think a little bit unique in history, given sort of the the amount of technology that's come into our lives. Certainly in in our lifetimes, Bridget. Um, you know, hey, we're all newbies. You know, no one's had a smartphone more than ten years, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so, so, so we're all learning. It's still. You know, it's ever present. It's not like this. It's not like I could have learned that lesson in my twenties. It didn't exist. You know, it's so funny. Um, you'd mentioned that, and I was thinking, um, we have so many devices in our home. And what what my wife and I have done is, you know, when we're at the dinner table uh, having dinner as a family, there is no such thing as a device, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like we we sit down, we talk, we go pure analog, right. and it's so so, I think joyful. It's the right word to describe it. And then what we do with our kids, too, is, you know, when they go to bed at nighttime and we put them down, all the devices leave their room. And so they all go to our charging station uh, down in the family room. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we ensure that, you know, a device is not going to go off in the middle of the night or they're not looking at their screens before they go to bed or anything like that. And, you know, what we've noticed is that they're actually much happier, right, Uh, when we do that for them. So... Yeah, well, I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that's been written about. Yeah, get the screens out of it as adults, right? Trying to sleep, yes. sleep hygiene, right? Get the get the screens out of your room and so on. And yeah, I mean, we don't have TV in our our bedroom. My wife and I, um, I never have, and that that certainly I think is a good practice. Um, <laughs> I wish we could say we got rid of our cell phones and. And otherwise, but uh, you know, even though when your as your kids grow, it's hard to say, yeah, I'm gonna have my phone on another part of the house when <laughs> somebody might need to get hold of me. I don't yeah. know, you, Bridget, yeah. do you do you keep your phone by your bed? Um, yeah, I do. I'm. I don't. I do for an alarm, although I never use an alarm, and that's where my charger is. But I'm not. I don't check it in the night. Like I don't. I'm not that tempted by my device. Although psychologically, I'm. I think I'm going to move it because I don't, I just need to move my charging station, but I'm, I'm not very tempted in the middle of the night. Oh, I don't no, have I'm a TV. Either. No, I'm just yeah. talking about, yeah, if there's an emergency and somebody needs to get hold of you. Well, yeah. and that's, that is actually more, that's more the reason that I have it. But I mean, right now I'm in an apartment in Boston and I'd be able to hear it if it were in another place in the apartment Mm. so i can i can move it and still and still have it i think for me the having the phone near me is just sort of a leftover from when my kids were young and i was a single mom and just just needing to have it close by 
I think some of it just has been this ingrained habit. They are adults now. I don't need to be by the phone. I think, you know, they don't need to be picked up from school. Nobody's, nobody's going to call. The school nurse isn't going to call. Then you pick them up. I'm good. Cut that, cut that cord, Bridget. Cut yeah, that cord. Yeah, I know, Trong. Move, I know, I know. It's, move that charger. It, it should have been, it should, it should have been <laughs> about 10 years ago. Well, hey, so as funny. I said, smartphones didn't exist. They were just coming on board 10 years ago. I mean, it's hard to, hard to believe when you think about it. Because I, I, I was at the Apple store this past weekend looking at the iPhone 10. Or drooling over the iPhone 10. I can't remember one of the two. And um, yeah, I think about how far it's come in 10 years. Just it's the fact it's only been 10 years. I mean, that's that's the part that's just to me is mind boggling. I mean, you look at just yeah. how, how pervasive smartphones around the world are. And I mean, I remember, um, you know, gosh, back selling satellite communication systems to be able to, you know, provide telephony to rural areas. And then suddenly, Cell phones showed up, especially smartphones. And it's like, yeah, that all disappeared. Everybody's got, everybody's got a smartphone all over the world. That's so true. So, okay, let's get back to your book for a second, Tron, because I, I didn't want to um, ignore that. But um, so I guess there are a, a question is, <laughs> it's like, and I'm saying this gently, but I mean, do you hate old people? <laughs> <laughs> So, no, no. so, 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 there's, so a, I, there's a quote in the book, is, the VPs that I worked with who were born in the 60s and thought Father Time had died of a heart attack because everything they did was frozen in time. And you're saying they didn't understand analytics or Internet of Things or cloud computing. You know, that might have been, might as well have been UFOs to them. So is there just a, as someone who was born even before that, is there is some sort of overgeneralization there? Uh, there is a little bit. So okay. let me let me give this, uh, give you some context to that that uh, we're uh, spreading there as well for uh, storytelling purposes. So I was looking after a large global bank, and you know, in the banking industry, everyone's been in their uh, in that their same jobs in their the company for the you know twenty to thirty years. That that's the standard uh, lifespan in banking, and, and then on top of that. It's a Canadian bank. And, you know, I, I'm going to overgeneralize here just because I'm Canadian. So Everybody I can say was this. very nice and polite. Yeah. yeah. Canadians <laughs> in general are just very, very conservative. Right. So you have the um, combination of being in banking, which is conservative by nature. And then you have Canadians who are conservative by nature. And then everyone there that I dealt with uh, was just very, very conservative um, to the extreme. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't want change. So I posed a real threat when I said, hey, let's mix things up a bit. Let's change this. Let's change that. And they're like, uh, no, we're not changing anything. And so that, that was the, the background into uh, the story. <laughs> well, I couldn't resist, couldn't resist a little jab since you, since, <laughs> you, worked, since, you, since you worked for Microsoft, that was you know, oh. founded by a number of people who were born in the 1950s. So. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think I don't think they're obsolete yet. Um, so I, I liked another thing that you had that I thought was was interesting. Uh, a uh, observation about the challenger sale, which I thought was, and why most salespeople are incapable of of doing it. And you were talking with the customer about why you were failing, and and um, you said the you know, challenger sale talks about challenging your customers, but missing a chapter about challenging yourself. So, what did you mean by that? 
Yeah, so, you know, Matthew Dixon wrote uh, The Challenger Sale, and it's a great book for those of you who have not read it. Pick up well, a copy, read don't, it. Don't forget Brent Adamson as well. Yeah, Brent Adamson as well. You're totally correct. And basically what it tells you is, hey, you know, challenge your customers, push them, make them uncomfortable so that they can become better, so that you can make them better. But I think there's a missing element to that. Uh, you know, as I was dealing with these very, very uh, tough banks, right? And, you know, we sat down in a very kind of calm, collected manner, and we discussed things as to uh, why we couldn't do certain things. And the customers actually challenged me back and they said, hey, listen, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? If what you're telling me is true, why can't you do A, B, C, and D? And as I sat there with them listening, mm -hmm. I thought, oh my God, they are completely logical. They're completely right. I need to bring this back up to my management team and get this addressed because, you know, we're not always right. Like we think as the vendor in technology that, hey, we have the answers to everything. And you know what? We don't. Right. And sometimes customers have the most insightful, mm. valid feedback. And we need to challenge our leadership team, our management team to go, this doesn't make any sense. We're wrong. Let's go fix it and change it, right? And mm -hmm. so my message is that, you know, we need to have the intellectual honesty uh, in our companies to go and be able to address it with our leadership team when we're wrong and be courageous enough to go fix it. No, I agree, 100%. That's a great great point. Bridget, you were, sound like you are ready oh, to make I a just, comment. I, I think I was just, um, uh, mumbling in agreement in affirmation <laughs> of it. Yeah. Well, I think just it's just a plus one. Yeah. Plus one. <laughs> plus one. All right. Well, I, yeah, I think it's a great point. I think it's, it's one of the fallacies of the challenger sale is just, as you said, it's built on the presumption that, that your insights as a vendor are superior to those of the customers. And right. while undoubtedly there are instances where that's the case, I would, put those in the distinct minority, quite frankly. And yeah, I think that there's a mistake that salespeople make all the time is underestimating the sophistication of their customers and insights they have about their own business. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, the insights about your business, you as the vendor. I, I mean, totally there, agree. Have, there have been many times in my career where I learned a lot from, from customers uh, that along the lines that you talked about, that was extremely valuable feedback for the company, and and oftentimes, yeah, it became sort of decisive. And later on, when we sort of altered what we we're doing, our strategy, or how we how we positioned a product and sold it based on feedback from customers, that that made it that much more successful. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right. Well, good. Well, Trung, it's been great talking to you. And um, Bridget, any other? questions or anything for no Trung really enjoyed it and i i have not read the book i am a big reader and i really look forward to reading it trong it sounds like a just a good story and sharing your journey i think is super helpful so that we you know we know that we have this community even if we don't know the individuals so i think it's uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it yeah so awesome. trong before we sign off so tell people again the the full title of the book and where they can get it Yep. Uh, so you can uh, buy the book. The book is called Winning the Cloud, uh, and you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, and if you guys uh, want to get a hold of me, find me on LinkedIn. Would love to connect with you and uh, share more war stories and help in any way I can. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, Trong, thank you. 
And uh, Bridget, as always, thank you. And friends, thank you for joining us today and uh, participating in the show. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Looking forward to it. sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, We generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.